to uh, celebrate that resurrection. In fact, I, I look around in this sanctuary, and it is about as empty as Jesus' tomb on Sunday morning. And so I just want to thank you this morning for giving me an object lesson on this Easter Sunday. Just as you are absent from this sanctuary, so Jesus' body is absent from that tomb. In fact, it seems to me that, that all the, the might of the devil and man uh, came together and did everything they could to keep Easter Sunday from happening about 2,000 years ago. And you know they failed spectacularly. And uh, a pandemic's not going to keep us from celebrating the Lord is risen. And so I am excited to be able to join with you, even though we can't be together in person, to be able to celebrate uh, this great work of Jesus Christ. Of course, when we think about the resurrection of our Lord, it is the, the heart of Christianity. And so let us just remember uh, this morning that Christianity is primarily a belief and even a proclamation of historical events. In fact, D.A. Carson, a great theologian who has impacted my life, has explained the entire Bible pivots on one weekend in Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago. And of course, we know in that weekend that Jesus Christ has died for our sin. He was buried and he rose from the dead. And of course, that's what we uh, delight to celebrate every Sunday that Jesus has risen from the dead, and of course, in this particular Sunday as well. Of course, it saddens our heart to know that, that many don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Many, many want to kind of celebrate what they would call the spirit of Easter, and at the same time, reject a literal, historical, bodily, public resurrection from the dead. They, they would, would say to us, wouldn't they, that Easter is, is not so much about what happened, it's about the feeling in our heart. Easter is about new life, they will tell us. Easter is, is about uh, springtime following winter, and, and out of every disaster there are new beginnings, and every cloud has a silver lining. And so they, they would, many would reject that Jesus actually rose from the dead, but they would say something to the effect, well, Jesus is alive in me, and therefore wish you a happy Easter. And I just w- would suggest that we consider, is that what the church said 2,000 years ago? I mean, is that, is that why people were running all over the Roman Empire? Were they uh, uh, gathering people together um, throughout the, the known land saying, listen, we have a new teaching we want to declare to you. And here it is. You ready? Every cloud has a silver light. And, and we want to announce to you that springtime follows winter. So chin up. Things are going to get better. Is that why thousands of people... We're, we're, we're coming to this faith where they're saying, wow, this changes everything. Throw me to the lions. Send me to the gladiators. After all, every cloud has a silver lining. Of course not. This wasn't what going on at all. You, all we have to do is read the historical accounts and, and we, we learn that they were declaring that Jesus bodily rose from the dead. In fact, there's evidence of it all over the place. I mean, you think that thousands of Jews we know who have been worshiping on the Sabbath for literally for millennia as dictated by God at the very foundation of their faith overnight changed their day of worship. 
and begin to worship on what Christians call the Lord's Day on Sunday? Or how is it that thousands of Jews who were in that day, well, above all people, were radical monotheists, and yet overnight they begin to worship this man, Jesus of Nazareth, as if he were God himself? And as I mentioned, this took place incredibly quickly. There was no kind of generational slow development of theology. There were no gathered councils to kind of uh, evolve our system of beliefs. There, was no, there were no swords, there was no army, there was no power, there was no wealth. All we see in history is just overnight, in a matter of years, thousands, tens of thousands of people were flocking to the, this faith and sacrificing greatly for it, willing to die for it. The question we must ask is why? Why? Well, they tell us Jesus came back to life. They did not go around and say, well, Jesus is alive in my heart. They said, no, he died. And three days later, we were having breakfast with him. He, he appeared to us. He came to us. You see, I mention this because I want to remind us that Christianity and its very foundation is a matter of history. We live in a day in which many people will come to you and, and, and to me and they'll, they'll, they'll congratulate us on our faith and they'll say, you know, I'm so happy that you, you have found a faith that, that works for you. And they'll, they'll walk up to me and say, Stephen, I'm just, you, you seem to be passionate about Christianity. I'm happy that you found something that fulfills you. I'm, I'm happy that, that Christianity is helpful to you. And I simply just want to remind us it has nothing to do with whether it's helpful or not. I mean, Christianity can be the least helpful thing out there. It has has nothing to do with whether it it, it is meaningful to me or not. What matters, is it true? Is it fact or is it fiction? Is it myth or is it history? Did Jesus of Nazareth literally rise from the dead? It was uh, Chuck Colson, the the famous Watergate felon turned uh, prison evangelist, who writes... When I was in India, I had many opportunities to tell what Christ had done in my life. The thousands of faces of those predominantly Hindu crowds would nod and smile as I shared my experience. Hindus believe all roads lead to God. If Jesus was my guru, that was fine. They had their gurus too. But when I spoke of the reason for my faith, the resurrection of Christ, the nods would stop. People's expressions changed, and they listened intently. The resurrection demands a choice. And so let's just affirm once again, Hamilton Baptist Church, that Christianity is not based on feelings. It is not based on some religious teaching. It is not based upon moral commands. It is not based upon spiritual experiences where someone can come to us and say, you have your faith, I have my faith. We both like our individual faith. Let's just leave that there. I'm afraid we cannot do that with Christianity precisely because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a matter of history. Did Jesus of Nazareth rise from the dead as hundreds proclaimed that they saw him? And, and if perhaps you're listening to the sermon, you say, no, I don't think he did. I simply would just ask one follow-up question. Is what do you do with all the historical evidence? I would suggest to you that there is no way to account for the immediate and unprecedented emergence of the Christian church 
at great suffering to all those who embraced it without the bodily resurrection of Christ. You see, Christianity is not that Jesus gives us practical insights into life or helps us cope with reality. Christianity is the belief that God came into the world in Jesus and Jesus conquered death for us. That he indeed has power over death. And I want to share with you this wonderful story in John chapter 11. You might turn your Bibles there. That we see where Jesus demonstrates this incredible power over death. And once we spend a little bit of time in that passage, we'll consider the Jesus' own resurrection and the implications it has for us. And so let me read you just a portion of this story. I'll read you the end, but we'll have to spend some time in it uh, from the beginning. But consider John chapter 11, beginning in verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you have sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this wonderful word in which we have before us. and We might celebrate a very clear indication that Jesus himself has power over death. And something that's demonstrated here in the story with Lazarus. And of course, something that is fully demonstrated in his own resurrection. And so, and so we gather even uh, remotely today with this great hope in our hearts. That, that Christ has conquered our greatest enemy for us. He has taken death upon himself on our behalf, in our place, as our substitute, and then to prove that he has paid for our sins, that he has borne our transgressions, that he has wiped away our iniquities, he rose triumphantly from the dead. And now is, as he declares, the living one, the one who holds the keys of death itself. And it's him we worship today, Father. It's Him we glorify and honor for all that He has done on our behalf. And so as we consider His work from this passage of Scripture, we pray that You would help us to understand these truths. And then as our mind lays hold of them, that our hearts would rejoice in the one we call our Savior. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. It was in 1836 that... Daniel Draper, a missionary to Australia, returned back to England for just a little bit after he had started actually 30 churches in Australia. And spending the time um, in in England, his home country, with family and friends, he would set sail to return back to the mission field, back to Australia. It was five days into that voyage that his ship was confronted with a terrible storm. 
and the, the, the winds buffeted the ship, and the waves were breaking over top of it, and the ship was rocking violently. And, and so Draper um, gathered the people in the saloon for a prayer meeting. And when they began their prayer meeting, the, the captain actually came in and said, the storm is so violent that we are going to turn around and attempt to make it back to England. Well, as they begin to turn, a, a mountain of water fell upon the ship at 10.30 p.m. on that cold January day, and it com- the water completely filled the engine room of the ship. And the men attempted to uh, repair it, uh, but nature just continued to show no mercy. And so this prayer meeting, which had started, began to uh, grow in its earnestness. Draper's biographer writes, the darkness that night was an eerie forerunner of the deeper darkness that would soon engulf them. At midnight, Draper began a prayer meeting in the saloon. All the passengers and the crew uh, not on duty gathered. In between prayers, Draper exhorted the people to come to Christ for salvation. Many brought their Bibles and read them with earnestness. Survivors reported that mothers were weeping as they held their bewildered children and be, bid each other farewell. By morning, the captain reported that all hope was lost. And a terrible silence fell upon those who had gathered. Until Draper stood and with tears falling from his eyes said in a strong, clear voice, The captain tells us there is no hope, that we all must perish. But I tell you, there is hope, hope for all. Although we must die and shall never see land again, we may all make the port of heaven. They resumed their prayer meeting and would continue to pray until two in the afternoon on January 11th when that ship sank, taking with her 246 of the 273 on board. One of the survivors says as he left the ship, he heard the people singing. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, when I rise to worlds unknown and behold thee on thy throne, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. I wonder... If this is how you would face a death like this. I I, I think this is perhaps a question that is maybe more on our mind today than it has been in recent days in light of this worldwide pandemic in which we live. If you knew that you were soon to die, whether it be drowning or disease, would the work of Christ for you enable you to sing at such a dreadful time? Or rather than singing of God's grace, would you instead question it? Would you instead doubt his love? You see, a similar tragedy happened in Jesus' day, and there was a question of his love in the midst of it. Note John chapter 11 and verse 1. For we read now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, of the village of Mary and her sister Martha. We're we're reminded that there's this family of three here. Lazarus, 
and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. These are individuals who, as you perhaps know, are deeply loved by Jesus. In fact, it says as much in verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. These, they had a very special relationship. If you read the gospel accounts, it seems Jesus delighted to be able to spend time with them. And they delighted to be able to serve them. It's almost as if when Jesus came to their home in Bethany, he could kind of be himself. It was like a bed and breakfast in Bethany where Jesus was, was served instead of serving people one after another. It was a deep love for this family, a close intimacy with him. And now Lazarus is ill. We're not not told what is his sickness. It's undefined for us. Perhaps we can imagine, I think, it it might be some respiratory infection. And so they appeal to Jesus to come. In particular, as you know, in verse 3, they appeal to Jesus' love for Lazarus. For we read, so the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love... Is, is ill. Will you come and heal him? And clearly they, they expected Jesus to do so. Uh, Lazarus being so important to Jesus. He's sick. You love him. You've been healing one after another after another. Thousands, tens of thousands of people have been healed by you. Certainly you'll come and heal the one you love. And yet we read in great perplexity, verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He who has healed over and over and over again chose not to heal the one whom he loves. And as a result, Lazarus dies. And Jesus knows it, for you read in verse 14. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And you could imagine, can't you, the heartbreak that they must experience at that time. It was a a, a compounding heartbreak, if you will. Not only are they enduring the loss of their brother, it's combined with the confusion of Jesus' absence. I mean, they sent for Jesus during their hour of desperate need. I, I, I trust eyes scan the horizon as Lazarus' breathing continued to labor. Surely, they must have thought Jesus would come. Surely, he would arrive in time. But he did not. Death reached up and grabbed hold of Lazarus, and Jesus was not there to stop it. And so confusion and questions began to plague the mind of those who were left behind. Questions, if you will, of God's love. For you read in verse 21, finally Martha encounters Jesus, and she says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Or consider verse 32, a question from Mary. She mirrors her sister once again. Lord, if you have been here, my brother would not have died. Or or even the crowds were wondering about God's love. For we read in verse 37. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? You see, Jesus is faced with these tragic questions in the face of death. So the question for us is, how will he respond? We see in John chapter 11 that Jesus has four responses to this death. And I think they're all incredibly powerful and helpful for us today. First of all, consider that Jesus gives hope. Jesus gives hope. It's interesting to me that seems the theme of our our service already this morning is Christ being this living hope. And he offers us hope. We see it here, of course, in verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had 
already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha learned that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Somehow Martha gets word that Jesus is approaching, and so she slips out of the home, now full with mourners, unnoticed by them, to meet Jesus outside of town. You could see, I think, for Martha there in your mind's eye, can't you? They're pale and, and weary and brokenhearted, standing alone. Perhaps Bethany in the, behind her, shimmering in the afternoon heat, and there in front of her, walking down that dusty road, is none other than Jesus with those who follow him behind. And when he reaches her, Martha speaks from her heart those words we've already heard there in verse 21. Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. I I imagine that's not the first time Martha spoke that question. I, I imagine she has asked it again and again and again. When will Jesus arrive? When will he get here? Is he coming as she watched her brother die. And it's with this, this question, this doubt, this confusion, this pain that Martha greets Jesus on the road. Why did you not come? Why were you not here? My brother is dead because of it. And I wonder if you ever felt that way. I'm sure many have. You wonder, where are you, God. When a loved one dies? Where are you, God, when the marriage falls apart? Where are you, God, when your parents divorce? Where are you, God, when a child abandons their faith? I I imagine this this disappointment, this despair expressed by Martha is something that countless others have expressed to God. If you were only here. Well, you see Jesus' response there in verse 23. He says to her, your brother will rise again. Martha, struggling, is a bit unclear as she responds to Jesus' statement there in verse 24. I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. In which Jesus clarifies what he means to Martha. He's not talking necessarily, at least exclusively, about the resurrection of the last day. And he gives her this staggering claim there, does he not? In verse 25, a claim of amazing hope. A claim of living hope. For he says to her, I am the resurrection. I am the life. He's saying to Martha, you believe that there is coming a great and glorious resurrection at the end of the age. You're right, it is coming. But know this, I'm the one who brings that day. I am the resurrection. I am the life. I give life. I am the very source of life itself. And then he, he offers her this hope as he does to you and I this morning. Reading on in verse 25. He says, I am the resurrection and the life if you believe in me. And he says... Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet he shall live. He declares, if you would believe in me, you will have this life that I offer you. I will rescue Lazarus, he declares, and anyone else who believes in me from death. And he continues on, doesn't he, in verse 26. And he says, and everyone who lives and believes in me, though he dies, 
yet he shall live. Now, what does Jesus mean? Uh, uh, excuse me, what does he say there in verse 26? I misquoted. He, he says, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So what does he mean that we'll never die? Well, what, Jesus, of course, is not saying we'll never face physical death. He, he knows we will. Lazarus has faced physical death. Jesus, as we've already uh, 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 considered today, will face physical death himself. People will die physically. But what Christ is saying is that the one who believes in me will receive a life that will never be taken from them. And not even death can rob it. I give abundant life, he says. I give eternal life. That only real life is found in me. And we do not have to wait to die in order to receive the life in which Jesus offers us. I so appreciate what Paul said in the book of Galatians in chapter 2 and verse 20 when he declared, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Yet the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself up for me. This is the resurrected life that Jesus offers, the abundant life that he promises us earlier in John's gospel. He says, I I will rescue Lazarus, both body and soul, from death. And if you believe in me, I will do the same for you as well. And so Christ seeks to nourish this brokenhearted Martha with this unimaginable hope. I love you, Martha. Don't you understand? I hate death. Don't you understand? And I will show you both are true. But before he does, he challenges her. There at the end of verse 26, he asks her this question. Do you believe this? In the face of this tragedy, do you believe this hope that I offer? And I wonder if he would ask us the same question. When our ship is sinking, when the storm does not relent, when tragedy befalls us and it seems as if Christ is not coming to save the day, will we believe in him then? Will we live in light of this hope? I pray that we can view the troubles and difficulties of our life through the lens of of Christ's power over death, that we might experience the life that he wants to offer us all, even this very moment. I love the story of a Japanese man, Tokiki Ishii, who experienced this life. In fact, he learned of it while he was in prison when two women came to witness to him of Jesus. You see, Ishii was a notorious criminal in his day. In fact, a a murderer. He had killed many people. He was a a, a terribly brutal man, an awful person, and he was awaiting execution in prison. And two women came to speak of him and Jesus, and all he did was glare at them through the bars. And they eventually left in utter despair, thinking they had not reached him at all. I haven't listened to a word that they said, but they left a Bible behind. And Ishii picked up that Bible and began to read, and kept reading, and kept reading, and kept reading, until he finally came to the Gospels. And he came to the point where Jesus was dying on the cross and he heard uh, Jesus pray in Luke's gospel, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. She recalls in his own words at that moment, I stopped reading. I was stabbed to the heart as if pierced by a five inch nail. Shall I call it the love of Christ? Shall I call it his compassion? I don't know what to call it. I only know that I believed and my hardness of heart was changed. 
In fact, he received, his life utterly, radically transformed. He received new life, and others began to notice. In fact, on on that day of his execution, when his jailers led him to the scaffold, his biographer writes, he found not the hardened, surly brute he expected, but a smiling, radiant man. For the murderer had been born again. Literally, Christ brought Tokiki Ashii to life. And if he could do that for you, he could do that for anyone, can't he? There's no matter what trouble we face or hardship we endure or what prison we inhabit, Jesus gives living hope. He comes to give that to us. But that's not all he, he brings. You see, secondly, Jesus expresses compassion. He gives hope. He expresses compassion. You know, of course, that Lazarus had not just one sister, but two. We read of Mary's encounter with Jesus beginning in verse 28. When she had said this, that's Martha, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were in her house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary had come to Jesus and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You see, of course, Mary has the very same words that Martha did. She has the same grief. She has the same question. And there she is outside the, the town. She claps at Jesus' feet. She sobs and says, Lord, why weren't you there? Why didn't you come? Now, it's fascinating to me to see that Jesus' reaction to the same grief, the same question, is radically different at this time because these women have different needs. He offers her no words of hope, but instead he gives her heartfelt compassion. As you note in verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said, Lord, come and see. And then that very famous verse there in verse 35. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Why? Why is the Lord of glory now crying? Don't you see his love pulls him into her sorrow. And in her sorrow, Jesus feels the horror of death. He grieves the loss of a loved one. Now with Martha, he comes and he preaches to her and he says, listen, Martha, you got to believe. Listen, understand, I'm the resurrection and the life. You need to trust me. With me, it's never too late. And he meets uh, Martha's sorrow and he calls for her to put her faith in him. But with Mary, you notice there's no sermon at all. He, He doesn't even say a word. He just enters into her sorrow. In fact, it seems to me that with Martha, he proclaims to be God. I am the resurrection. I am the life. With Mary, he shows himself to be human as he weeps with her, displaying for us once again that he is both God and man. He is truly the God-man. And I imagine his compassion was very comforting and and very reassuring. But but what would have happened if all Jesus did was then to accompany weeping uh, Mary to the tomb and there he cried along 
her side for a little while and said to her, I'm so sorry, Mary. And then they both walked away weeping, just like perhaps you and I might do. Certainly that would be a, a nice blessing, I trust. Certainly um, it would uh, engender love towards him. But would he be one worthy of our trust? Would he be one, if that's all he did, that we can trust him in the face of death, that we can trust our eternity to him, if all he did was offer compassion? But praise God, that's not all he did. See, he didn't walk away. Jesus had work to do. As you see, thirdly, Jesus demonstrates his power. It's interesting to read in verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again. Right? So we saw him deeply moved up in verse 33, I believe it was, there weeping. And now there's a deep moving in Jesus' heart once again. He came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. So Christ is, is walking up to the tomb. Once again, his emotions are stirring. And I think these are new emotions. His eyes uh, may be filled with tears, but his heart is filled with rage. His heart is filled with anger at death. Jesus uh, clearly displayed to us here is not some stoic, unfeeling theologian. He's not coming and saying, listen, death is inevitable. Uh, Don't let it get to you. He's not, it doesn't offer that naive counsel that sometimes is battered about. Well, we're just going to praise the Lord in the midst of it. No, B.B. Warfield said about a hundred years ago, Jesus advances to the tomb, not weak and sniveling, but as a champion preparing for conflict. He wins our salvation, not in cold unconcern, but in fiery wrath against our enemy. And he has this deeply moved in anger towards death. Unlike us, we often don't get angry at death. We, we tend to deal with death by sentimentalizing, sentimentalizing, let me try that again, sentimental. I don't even can say that. We say death is natural, don't we? We put a bow on death. Let me put it that way. We, we say death is just part of life. It's just the, uh, the, the end of life. And we even have this stupid phrase these days, this silly idea that it was just a circle of life. And, and we say things, isn't it beautiful? And we all know, I think, in our heart that it's a lie. None of us approach death and we think, oh, isn't this wonderful? We, know, we don't come up to death and say, oh, there you are, friend. I've been, I've been missing you. We know death is awful. We know death is horrible. Death is no friend to us. It is an enemy to us. And Jesus walks up to the tomb and doesn't say, oh, death, it's good to see you again. He sees death as the miserable enemy that he is, as his own heart is filled with sorrow and anger. And so my Christian brothers and sisters, just because we have the Christian hope in Christ, which we must hold to, it doesn't mean we don't feel a deep outrage at death itself. And see, Christ is at the tomb now, and he is, of course, we've already seen, given us very encouraging words, and we've already seen, has very, had very strong emotion. But the question now arises, does he have anything to back it up? Well, I'm happy to declare to you today, he does. As you see in verse 39, Jesus said, take the stone away. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? So when they took the stone away and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you have sent me. When he had said these things, he 
cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And we read in verse 44, the man who had died came out. He commands the dead, and the dead obey him. Because he is the resurrection and the life. And my Christian brothers and sisters, those of you who believe in Christ, you will be raised from the dead one day. And Lazarus is just a little preview of our resurrection, just a little window into the glory that is coming for us all. The one we worship, the one we follow, has power even over death itself. As we see Jesus demonstrate this great power. And yet there's a fourth response to death. You see, lastly, Jesus offers us love. This climatic miracle did not go unnoticed. We've already seen that it, it did not this, not just in front of Mary and Martha, but the crowds, the dozens, the scores of mourners had now gathered around there at the gravesite as well, and they saw what the Lord has done. And so we read in verse 45, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. You remember, of course, that Jesus has enemies. Those enemies are residing in Judea, down where Jesus now is in Bethany, and they have stood in opposition to Jesus. And so their, their lackeys go and report this uh, unbelievable, public, powerful miracle which Christ has done, perhaps the greatest thing he has done up to this point, and now done it in front of scores of people. And his enemies then gather together for counsel and to decide what are we going to do with Jesus. We can't, just, we can't shut him up. We can't stop him. There's nothing we can do. And now he's raising the dead. And so they gather and decide what his fate would be. Their conclusion is found in verse 53. So from that day on, from that day when Lazarus was raised, they made plans to put him to death. It is at this point that is the turning point of Jesus' life. You see, this miracle is too visible. It is too powerful. It is too undeniable. He must be stopped in their estimation. This has stealed his fate. Jesus has gone too far this time. He must die. And Jesus is aware that this is happening. He knew that this would happen. In fact, it seems even the apostles knew it would happen. If you turn back to verse 7 and read before he even got down there, we read these words. Then after he said this to his disciples, he said, let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were seeking to, who were seek, just now seeking to stone you are there. You're going to go down there again, right? Hey, there's people down there that want to kill you. Are you really going down there? And Jesus says, yes, I'm going. And so we see Thomas's famous conclusion there in verse 16. Let us also go, that we may die with him. You see, Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew that pushing the envelope this far would sign his own death warrant. And so as one pastor put it, when he says, Lazarus, comes out, come out, he is saying, I am going in. For Christ not only fights death for us, as we see here in this wonderful story, he actually receives death for us. In order to get us out of the grave forever, he put himself into it because he loves us. Because he loves you. And so this was simply not just a demonstration of 
blessing on this one man. This was Jesus saying, I am going to make it inevitable that I will die for you and for all who would trust in me, that I might pay for their sins out of my great love. But of course, we, we celebrated that Friday. Today is the celebration of the day, not only of, uh, of his death, but of his resurrection. And so if we think his love might be demonstrated for us in his death, certainly his might, his glory is seen in his resurrection. As I shared with the praise band this morning from uh, Revelation chapter 1, another book, of course, that John wrote. It's here John encounters the Lord Jesus now raised from the dead, now glorified. Jesus says to him these words in verse 17 of John 1, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I die, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. You see, my brothers and sisters in Christ, we have confidence and hope in the face of death, in the face of tragedy, in the face of trouble, because Jesus himself has risen from the grave. He holds the keys of death. He is alive forevermore. He is the resurrection and the life. And so we must continually, day by day, consider his resurrection. Consider that he is not simply our crucified Savior, but he is our risen King. And let those truths penetrate our heart And if we would, I think we would live the life in which Jesus offers us. We would experience the power that is available to us in this life and certainly the life to come through his resurrection, right? When fear paralyzes us, as it might be in this day, we must gaze not upon the circumstances which trouble us, but upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. Listen to what he says here in Revelation. Fear not. Fear not, don't you see, I died and I have risen and I'm alive forevermore. I hold the keys of death. Fear not, I rule the universe. And so why then ultimately will we fear anything? He is for you. He has all power and he is on your side. Too many of us live in fear. We live in fear of what others might think of us. If we are bold for Christ, we live in fear of what's going to happen and how is this going to work out and when will the economy get going again and and what's going to happen with my portfolio and my business and all the rest. And we, we live in fear. I tell you this morning, happy Easter. Jesus is alive. Fear not for he holds the keys of all power, even death itself. And I would moreover tell you, not only when fear paralyzes you, but when hardship troubles you. You and I need to remember the resurrection, the death and the resurrection of our Lord. Don't you love how when you read of the early church, they lived in in the midst of such hardship. And at the same time, seemed to be filled with this indomitable joy and delight. And and we might even question, were they just better Christians than we are? I don't think so. I think they simply lived in light of the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. That was the lens with which they viewed all of life, and it is the lens in which we should as well. And so in hardship, when we are beat down, when we are impressed, when life is difficult, we need to remember we have already won. That Christ is alive. When we face trouble, we need to reach into this hope 
that is found in the resurrection of Jesus. That we simply wouldn't just believe it, that we would experience that truth in our lives. So once again, I tell you this morning, Happy Easter. You and I, as followers of Christ, can endure anything with joy that is found in the resurrection of the Lord. Doesn't mean there's not hardship and sorrow, but as the Bible tells us, even in sorrow, there is joy. And I will go on when sin condemns us. You see, when fear paralyzes us, when hardship troubles us, when sin condemns us, we need to remember the death and resurrection of our Lord. For it is Paul who told us that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. As we've already heard this morning and sung this morning and prayed this morning that Jesus has paid our penalty that we might be forgiven. And of course, your greatest need and my greatest need is to be forgiven by a holy God. That you and I cannot approach God in any old way we want. We can't just come into God's presence and say hello. We need to deal with our sin. Now, I understand that it's at this point where many object with Christianity. It's at this point where they begin to get trouble with what we say. They say, listen, I like your morals. Love your neighbor as yourself. Turn the other cheek. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I can embrace all that. But why do you Christians always have to talk about sin? Why do you Christians always have to talk about forgiveness? Right? What kind of God do you have? Why is God always harping on sin? Your God seems very cranky to me. You have to pay for sin and before he'll talk to you. And they'll say things like this to us. Well, they're not. I don't know about your God, but my God is a God of love. Unlike your God, they will object to us. The Bible actually answers that issue over and over and over again. One of my favorite illustrations of which it does is found in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 16. And Ezekiel paints this metaphor as to what God has done for us. If I could just put it in contemporary context, Ezekiel explains that, that, that uh, what if you went out and you adopted a child? As many of you know, have adopted a child, you know that there's a great expense in adopting a child. It's great sacrifice in bringing a child into your home. And you adopt this child, and then you go on to raise this child. And of course, you know as well that raising a child is very expensive. And you give everything you can to this child, and you love this child, and you sacrifice for this child, and and you, you, you pour your heart into this child. And one day that child has now grown, and it's time for her to go off to college. And you say to her, listen, for the last 15 years, I've been working and saving, and I have saved enough money in order to pay for your college education that you might go and, and get an education in order to prepare you for the life that you are about to walk into. And what if she, instead of saying thank you, grabs that, that wad of money and without acknowledging it all, just walks out the door and you never hear from her again. And she never calls, she never writes, and years go by. And you get word that, that she hasn't gone to college at all, that she's taken the money you gave her, and she is uh, blowing it on all sorts of frivolous activities. She's spending on food and clothing and, and things that will soon pass away, and is just burning through it like there is no tomorrow. And then one day, after years of never seeing her or hearing from her, she opens the front door, she walks into your house and plops down on the couch and says, how are you doing? Well, what do you say to her? Well, you know, I'm getting behind at work, or traffic was really light today, that was nice, or 
know, the dishes are piling up? No, of course not. You, you say to her, wait, wait a second. I haven't seen you in years. You, 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 you can't just come in here and pretend like there's no problem, like nothing's happened, right? You, you've, you've betrayed me. And what if she said then to you, boy, you sure are cranky today. Right? I thought you loved me. And of course you would respond, I, I, I'm not cranky, and I do love you, and I always will love you, but we need to deal with your actions. You have wronged me over and over and over again. I gave you everything, and you, and, and you, you totally betrayed me. Well, do you understand that as Ezekiel lays this out for us, he says, that's us. That we have a creator and we are living in his creation and he has given us everything. We have all, all our talents, all our opportunities, all our, our resources, all, all our gifts, the home we live in, the air we breathe, the food we eat, the sunshine we enjoy. It is all his. And do you and I, by our nature, honor him for it? Are we walking around thanking him for it? Do we in, in, in any way really stop and consider what he wants for us to do with what he has given us? Well, apart from Christ, we do not. We act like everything is ours and we chart our own course and we do whatever appeals to our own hearts. We do whatever we want. We take God's money and his time and his abilities and his intellect that he has given us and we, we spend it however it pleases us without any regard to what he says. And then we think, well, we could just walk up to him and say, hi, God, I know I haven't seen you in a while, but I'm in a bit of a jam. Do you think you might help me out? Well, I think God would say to us, I would like to help you out. I love you, but you've wronged me over and over and over again. And we need to deal with your sin. You have sin that has put a barrier between us. And yet what's amazing is then that Jesus comes and he says, out of his great love for us, I will deal with your sin for you. I will pay your debt for you. And he does so by going to the cross and they're bearing the judgment that is due upon me and due upon you. And he pays for it and he uh, secures for us forgiveness of sin. So you say, okay, well, if the cross is the payment for sin, why do we even need the resurrection? Why, why is that important? Well, you see, the resurrection is, is proof that the payment has been received. As one pastor put it, the resurrection is your receipt. I mean, imagine if you go and buy something at a store and you, you walk out and, and the lights start going off and the alarms are blaring and the security descends upon you and they say, wait a second, you've stolen something from us. Well, what do you do? You reach into the bag, you grab the receipt, you shove it in their face and say, trouble me not. Listen, this is paid for. It is paid in full. Well, I tell you, uh, when... when Jesus died for us. That was our payment for our sin. The resurrection is proof of payment. It's our receipt. And if you're anything like me, when accusations come into my mind and penetrate my heart, when the alarms start going off inside of me, and I begin to think, do you really think God loves you after you did that? Do you really think God loves you after you spoke to your wife like that or treated your child like that or had that thought? You really think God's on your side and he's going to be there with you? What do you do to those fork-tongued lies? Well, you grab your receipt, you shove it in his face and say, Conscience, devil, enemy, trouble me not. My sins are paid for and the resurrection is my proof. Well, may the accuser roar of sins I have done. I know them 
and thousands more. Jesus knoweth none. Happy Easter. Your sins are forgiven. And we have indisputable proof for Christ is alive. Let me say last to you, my brothers and sisters, in Christ, when death beckons us, we must remember his death and resurrection. When your ship is sinking, when death is coming, we must set our minds and hearts once again on the work of Jesus Christ on that great Sunday morning. And even when we're not dying, even when we're healthy, is not death in the background, always. And, and not even in the background today. I can't turn on, a, on the internet and pull up a news page without the top of the page being a, a ticker on how many people have died up to the minute because of this terrible pandemic. It seems people continue to die as they always have. Death keeps winning, right? Whether it be pandemic or not, death always wins. Death is, is records like five billion and zero, right? It's never lost. And death one day reached up and laid hold of Jesus of Nazareth and it looked just like another victory. And yet we know three days later, Jesus threw death on its back and says, I'm out of here. I'm alive, for it is not possible for death to hold them. And so I tell you one more time, happy Easter. Death is defeated in Christ. And that all death can do for you, my brother and sister in Christ, is make you better than you are now. As one has said, because Jesus has been raised from the dead, death to the Christian is simply a dark tunnel to the heavenly feasting hall. I bring you good news today, Hamilton Baptist Church. Jesus is alive. He is risen. Do you believe that? Seems that's what Christ is driving home here in John 11. What does he say there? If we return to verse 25 one last time. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet he shall live. And again in verse 26, everyone who lives and believes in me, though, will never die. And then, for good measure, a third time, this time in the form of a question. As he looks to Martha after these extraordinary claims, he says, do you believe this? Not Martha, do you feel better now? Not Martha, you need to understand that, that every trial brings a new beginning and every cloud has a silver lining. Martha, do you believe I am who I say I am? Do you believe I am the very source of resurrection? I am the very source of life. Her answer is recorded in verse 27, in which she says, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into this world. Do you believe that? He has given you all the evidence in the world that you might we believe that we are sinners in need of saving. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who lived a perfect life for you, died for you, and rose from the dead, dead for you. And for my Christian brothers and sisters, will you not only believe it, will you cherish this hope? Will you live in light of his compassion? Will you rejoice in his power? And will you experience his love today? as seen in his death and his resurrection. Our Father, we are so thankful for the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We are thankful that he has secured for us life and life eternal through his work on our behalf, that he indeed is our substitute. He indeed has taken upon himself all the wages of our sin, all the wages of our transgression, and has demonstrated to us his great power and victory in rising from the dead. And now he stands before us declaring to John and declaring to us through his word, I am the living one. Behold, I died and I am alive forevermore and I hold the keys of death itself. May we cherish those truths as we walk in light of the love and the power of our resurrected Lord. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.